Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend Chavruta and Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachik Ketubot, DAP Chav, page 20. So we have some interesting discussion here about witnesses um, and how do witnesses sort of prove themselves. And I'm beginning in the middle of Amad Aleph. Amar Mar, Mar said, and this refers back to a brisa that we've been in the middle of that's talking about testimony and the establishment of testimony. Im yesh edim shekatav yadam huzeh, so if there are witnesses who that it's their handwriting, right, that's Anishtar, or if their handwriting comes from another place or from a document that somebody challenged that was eventually deemed as being valid in court, right, these witnesses are not deemed as credible, right? So the Gemara wants to say from this, right, a document that's challenged, right, in, yes, that makes sense. In other words, the signatures are, you know, basically have to be authenticated, um, and we wouldn't accept the testimony of other witnesses that it wasn't good if we were able to, you know, accept that the signatures on the document were good. Low, cry, love, are, are, low. But if someone did not challenge the document, no, the document cannot be used to authenticate their signatures. In other words, you can't use another document to authenticate signatures if that document itself challenged or not authenticated. So this supports, right, a statement of Rav Asi. I'm a Rav Asi. One can, uh, what would you say, like establish or, you know, I saw some English translations ratify a document, right, um, by, you know, basically making sure that those witnesses' signatures are actually the witness, good witnesses, only from a document that somebody challenged was deemed valid in court. In other words, you're not allowed to say, like, here I have a star and I have someone's, two, a pair of witnesses' signatures on it. And how do you know that those are valid witnesses or those are good witnesses or those people actually exist? So you say, oh, I have another document also with those same signatures on it. So the halacha is you can't just use that. It would have to have been a document, that second document that was like authenticated by the Beit itself because that document itself was also challenged. I'm reading Nahardai. So the sages of Nahardai, right? Remember, and that's the uh, one of the major centers of learning in Babel said, so you can also establish a document, you know, by authenticating the witnesses' signatures, either from two marriage contracts. So in other words, you have two marriage contracts and you see the same signatures. You could say, okay, this is a valid signature. Or from the bill of sale, basically, of two fields. That's what Mishte Sadot means. That's witnesses signed. And those bills of sale are only good where the owner established themselves, ate there for three years. So in other words, they proved ownership of the field. So it's not like it says so-and-so is now the owner of the field two months ago. But it's, it's You have the document of sale, and you know that the owner really, the, new, the owner from the document of sale is really living there. And who has a chazaka there, has been there for three years and in peace, right? Uh, meaning of a shofi, like, and it wasn't, uh, uh, nobody challenged it or nobody said that he didn't really own it. 
then those are signatures that we can use. Amar Rav Shimi Bar Ashi. So Rav Shimi Bar Ashi says, "Ubiyotzi mitachad yaracher, abal miyaratzmo lo." So when we talk about validating the signatures of witnesses by comparing them to other documents, this can only be done when the documents come from the possession of another person. If they come from the possession of the litigant himself, right? He says, "Here I have this bill, you know, this star about something." and it was signed by these witnesses, and I have another star signed by those same witnesses, that doesn't work. It would be that you have to have, find a star from somebody else with those same witnesses. So the Gemara says, What's the difference if it's in possession of the litigant himself, right, or or not, right? Dilma Zayofi Mizayef. Perhaps, right, when the documents were in his possession, right, maybe he learns how to basically copy those signatures or basically he learns how to forge them. So if that's the case, even when it's in the possession of another person, right? Maybe he went and saw the signatures, Any, in other words, and also forge. In other words, the issue of forgery can happen. It doesn't make a difference who possession the star is in. Anybody could have forged it, right? Dilma, uh, sorry, so it says, So the Gemara says, he wouldn't really be able to accurately forge something if he didn't actually have a copy of those witnesses' signatures in front of him. You can't really forge something well uh, just from memory. So, you know, this is a very interesting passage that I think shows us how did they really authenticate stars? Like, you could walk to the Beitin with a document and be like, so-and-so owes me money, and it's signed by two witnesses. It wasn't as simple as that. There actually was a process by which you had to verify who the witnesses were. Is this really a valid witness? Was this really a valid star? And I think it's interesting to see sort of like, you know, this is uh, the same way, like, you know, when you sign into email or you do something where there's sort of like an identity authorization or now today, a lot of times it's like you have to do those identity questions. So this is what the Gemara is basically discussing. It's like, how did you really verify that the star was good and those witnesses were really good witnesses and this is a valid star? I think it's reassuring to know that, the, you know, that the measures are put in place to make it a little bit more difficult to become a criminal. Oh, it's much more difficult. I mean, that's what's that's what you get. At. I mean, yeah, things you sort of don't think about. You're like, oh, it does make sense that this is something you would have to do. But I wouldn't have thought of it till I saw it in the Gemara itself. Right. Exactly. Um, I'm going to continue here. I'm, I'm a bet. Um, now, I want to say that what we're about to talk about is a complete sidebar. It's connected tangentially. And by tangentially, I mean that because a while ago, not even now what you're reading, Jordana, a while ago we had a citation from Ohalot. The Gemara then kind of says, oh, and by the way, once we were talking about Ohalot, there's a mission there and says, Tanan Hatam, Hatam there meaning there, because the tough and the Shin switch in from Aramaic to Hebrew. So it's like saying we learned Sham, and Sham there is Ohalot, um, chapter 16, Mishnah Bet, Mishnah 2. It's a tongue twister of a word for me. So that it says, if there's mounds of dirt that are either near the city or in a path, whether they're new or they're old, they're considered to be ritually impure. So you hear how this is a completely different topic. Um, and it happens to be interesting, and it happens to remind me of Psachim, actually, right? And the travels of people as they were coming to the Beit Hamikdash, and how they had to, you know, 
be careful of what they where they came in contact of what was going on, right? To keep themselves pure till they can get to the Korban Pesach. Although that's not the context here, right? The context is really just, if you come across mounds of dirt, treat them as Tameh. So then the Gemara here says, well, if the, if the mounds are distant from a city, if they're far from a city, those could be, um, if they're distant and also if they're new, then they could be ritually pure. Um, but, meaning the idea being that if someone had been buried there, people would know that they had opened a grave. But if they're old, then treat them as impure because the assumption is, or the, you can't make an assumption that you know that nobody was buried there. So perhaps somebody was. So therefore, as a safety precaution, basically, against becoming tummy, you say, all right, we're going to treat them as tummy and avoid them. Ezohi krova. So now the question is, how close can these be to the city? What does that mean, that it's close? Chamishim ama, so 50 cubits. Ve'ezuhi um, yeshana, and how, what does it mean that a mound would be old? Shishim shana, it's been there for 60 years. Now this is really interesting because I feel like, how who's keeping track, right? To know that it's been the difference between, you know, 48 years and 57 years, and now it's 60 years. Divi Rabbi Meir, that's Rabbi Meir's position. Rabbi Yudo Meir, Krova She'ein Krova Himena, Yishana She'ein Adam Zuchra. Rabbi Yehuda's position here is kind of more user-friendly, I would say. Rather than having a specific distance, namely 50 cubits from the city and 60 years from ago, right? Then Rabbi Yudo says, no, we're going we're gonna to handle this in a way that is more a matter of estimates and guesstimates and people can function, right? This is how people function, where the mound that is near, what does it mean that it's near? It means that there's no other mound that's nearer, right? So that's the nearest one, so that's the one that's near. And old, he says, and I really like this definition, old means it's so old that nobody remembers when it became when it was new. So that could be 60 years. It could be longer than 60 years. Or it could be that, you know, depending on what's gone on in the area, uh, you know, it could be much more recent than that, but it counts as old because nobody remembers. Nobody remembers, and you can't attest to whether there's a dead body there or not because nobody remembers. Uh, so the Rebbe Yehuda's positions are much less defined. You know, these the the assessment of how long ago and how far away are much less rigorously defined. And on the other hand, the rule of thumb I think becomes quite quite helpful. The Gemara goes on. My ear, my derech. What does it mean, a city, and what does it mean, a path? If you want to say that the city really means a city, derech, derech, mamash, and the path really means a path. So then, then that's going to be a big question because that presumes, and this is also quite interesting. Are we saying that there's a chazkat tuma, that there could be uh, an establishment or a presumption of tuma, of ritual impurity? In the land of Israel, meaning, is that what you're saying that that the city and the path, and now you're going to assume that these mounds that might be around there are, which are in the land of Israel, are going to give off impurity? How can that be? Didn't Reish Lakish say that the that Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, was deemed pure? Anytime there's a question, is that pure, is that impure? Meaning if you're not sure and it's the land of Israel, then we're going to say the, the doubt is resolved on the side of pure, not the side of impure. 
you know, maybe in Chutzlar it'll be impure, but here, because of the sanctity of the land of Israel, they they said, well, unless you know for sure that it's impure, then you can rest assured that it is in fact pure. Amir Rebbe Zera, ir ir so Rabbi Zera says, no, we're talking about a city that means a city that's literally adjacent to a cemetery. And the word derech, the path here, is literally the path that takes you into the Meaning then you're looking at mounds of dirt that are kind of along the way. And it seems like, well, perhaps that's exactly where they just kind of buried along the way instead of going all the way in and setting up properly. Um, the point being that once you're already in the area of a cemetery, then the fact that you have mounds of dirt, the, like the association with the possibility of a body, you know, suddenly makes sense. As opposed to just being along the way of any path, any road, I'm thinking, why not construction? You know, like, why does it have to be a situation of tumor? I, look, I love this discussion. First of all, the whole idea of whether or not Eretz Yisrael has tumor. Second of all, like to have to go through definitions of what's a derach, what's an ear, you know, and the definition of those things and then framing it halakhically was was very interesting here. Yeah, there there's some other that are worth reading inside. Um, the question of why those mounds would be there without people for sure knowing is addressed here. Is It's a kind of a really terribly sad story. Uh, the idea that women would bury their stillborn babies, you know, near to the city, but adjacent outside the city and and the, there are other possibilities there's other cases that are presented here as well as a discussion of Rebbe Mayer and why is he giving such specific details here but that's really the end of this discussion this sidebar as I say meaning it's a completely you know separate topic than witnesses or marriage and Kachubot and everything like that the Gemara is going to take us back to a Mishnah right which is going to talk about uh, witnesses because in the interest of time, we're going to read that tomorrow. It's the end of the daf here. We'll read it tomorrow and some of the Gemara then about that Mishnah then. Well, that's our daf discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this daf on their Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.